Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an advertising network for literary people, for art people, for movie people. You know what I'm talking about. People who enjoy culture, who enjoy consuming culture. If you want to reach those people online, if you want to advertise to those people, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a wide range of great culture sites like the Paris Review, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop. The list goes on. Litbreaker.com. Check it out. This is an advertising network. For book people, go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is available on multiple platforms. This is transportable on multiple devices. How's it going out there? Hello, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have a great show for you today. My guest is Meg Howry. She is the author of two novels, one of which is called Blind Sight. The other is called The Crane's Dance, both available from Vintage Contemporaries. I had an excellent conversation with Meg. That is going to happen for you momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio, purveyor of fine earbuds and uh, headphones. If you need some new earbuds or you need some new headphones, please visit tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. When you do that, you get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. So, uh, I did some mail last week. I'm going to continue that trend this week. I got a lot, you know, I have a lot of it stacked up here and I want to try to get through as much of it as possible. Uh, this first letter comes from a listener named Tyler in Mankato, Minnesota. He writes, uh, hi, Brad, I'm emailing because I'm curious if you have ever cried on the show, like on air, I've listened to probably one third of your podcasts and about every show so far this year, but I've never heard you tear up in a monologue or an interview. If not, I wonder if you are open to the possibility of sometime crying on the show. Not that I really want to hear you cry, but I felt very emotional listening to your monologue on a recent episode about the birth of your son. I was riding my bike through town, listening to you tell the story, and I was tearing up. I kept listening closely to hear if your voice wobbled at all. I'm not sure if it did, but something sounded different. Anyway, I'm just curious if you have ever cried on the show, or if you might ever, or if you have ever cried while recording a monologue 
and then stopped and re-recorded it sans tears. Thanks for reading this. Signed, Tyler. So thanks, Tyler. Uh, I guess I've gotten a lump in my throat on this program. And I think when I did the monologue about the birth of my son, I think I got a lump in my throat. I was also, I'm also very tired. Partially, you know, it's exhaustion. It's some emotion. I've never wept on the podcast that I can recall. Though I'm not above it. (laughs) Uh, I feel, you know, just off the top of my head, I feel like it's a more appropriate thing to have happen in the context of an interview. If it, you know, uh, uh, emerges organically during the flow of a conversation. But to start getting weepy in the monologue feels like uh, a bit too much for me. It's a fine line. Like, I I want to be honest. I want to be honest on the microphone. I like the idea of being open. I think that makes for a better listen. But, you know, you can take that too far. People don't want to hear me cry. (laughs) And if they do, I question uh, their judgment. So, yeah, my voice gets a little wobbly. I think, you know, I think that some of the worst moments of this program happen when I get too emotional and, and not in regards to, uh, children or the struggle to have a child and all that kind of stuff that I've talked about, but more so when I'm talking about cultural issues or I'm trying to be sensitive about something or, you know, I've had moments where I feel like I just got too soft. It's not good from my perspective. Got a man up. A listener named Michael writes to me, Hi there, Brad. Do you subscribe to the common catchphrase, fake it till you make it? And whether you do or not, what are your thoughts on it? What does it mean to you? Signed, Michael. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it just means practice until you get it right. Or, you know, you have to, you have to struggle for a while. I think there's something to acting like your heroes before you're actually like them. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what I think that means to me. So if you want to be a great writer, uh, read some literary, uh, literary biographies or some memoirs. Find out how uh, the writers you admire behave or behaved, both in, in terms of how, you know, their approach to the creative work, but also their approach to the business, their approach to uh, rejection, their approach to success. Learn from, uh, you know, what they did well also and Perhaps more importantly, learn from their mistakes. I think there's something to that. I don't know. I sort of hate phrases like that. (laughs) But yet, I think we've all... I mean, I've used that before. A couple times. A listener named Andres in Hamburg, Germany. This will be the last letter. Then we're going to get on with it. He writes, Dear Brad, one thing uh, might be lacking in your podcast, or at least something that I sometimes miss and believe would be interesting for some listeners, uh, and that is a bit of shop talk, i.e. technical discussion about writing. It's true that there are already a lot of writing advice listicles floating around, and perhaps some writers might not be so eager to divulge what works for them. But I think it would sometimes make for uh, fascinating exchanges. And might even be enlightening for the occasional listener to hear a bit more about the technical development of a writer's craft. Sign, Andres. 
Yeah, I'm not anti that. I mean, I feel like there's so much of that out there, though, that it, it's you can start to uh, bore people, especially people who listen regularly. There's only so many different ways to skin the cat. Read a lot. Work with discipline. I mean, I know you can get into the minutia, and sometimes you can have, um, you know, writers can take certain approaches that might resonate and could provide inspiration or insight that might otherwise be lacking. So I'll keep it in mind. I'll keep it like in the back of my mind. But this show is more about uh, tangent and improvisation and conversation and uh, the writer's personal lives. I feel like there's just so much uh, technical writing advice out there. I mean, just go to the bookstore. There's whole, there's shelves. Shelves of it. Google it. How to write. <laughs> um, but I will ask, you know, when it comes up in conversation, if there's a good moment. So uh, thanks, Andres. Thanks to Tyler and Michael. I appreciate you guys writing me. If anybody else wants to write to me, the uh, email address over here is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. I don't care what you send me. If you want to write to me, write to me. I would appreciate it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, all right, guys, let's get on with the program. Meg Howry is the guest. Her novels are called uh, Blind Sight and the Cranes Dance, available from Vintage. And uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy hearing from her. I had a great time talking with her. This is Meg Howry. It, I mean... I, I would say I got really restless in the career early, so I'm not the be- I'm not an exemplar of like the best kind of ballerina. That, you uh, know. So okay, so you get to New York, yeah. you leave home, yeah. no trauma associated with that because that's an early age to leave home. It's and true. to go off to New York by yourself, right? Did your parent? N- neither of your parents came with you. No. So you're there, living <laughs> in the city. Yes. Age 15. Yes. Essentially in a boarding school type scenario. No, I, I was in an apartment. There yeah. Was, yeah, the school I was at in New York didn't have any housing for students. Okay. So uh, I was sharing an apartment with an older dancer that I knew from, from school. <laughs> I think my parents, they just tried not to imagine it. You know, in the in the classic Midwestern sort of thing like we might have emotions if we really think about it so let's <laughs> not think about it so you know they sort of wave goodbye at the airport like well good luck yeah and then there you were and then there i was were you overwhelmed by the city coming from a small midwestern town uh 
not at all. I mean, I had been in Boston the year before, and then I, I had gone to New York for the summer before before I moved there, um, and I took to it right away. I mean, just love at first sight. It felt completely right to me. So I, I, was, a, I was a born New Yorker. But there was a lot of things I just didn't notice. I mean, I just trotted around on my little path. And it was like a, like in a cartoon with danger happening all around you, but you're in the little bubble. Just, yeah. You know. Going off to your ballet class. Just going off to ballet class, just completely oblivious. And what do your parents uh, do? Um, my dad had um, he'd been a physics teacher, and then he ran a lumber yard, and then he became a, a professional golfer. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Like on the PGA Tour? Uh, no, he was a teaching pro and ran a golf course. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's obviously a really interesting guy. Like a polymath. Yeah. Um, so he kind of got the whole, he's very, um, he's someone who if he starts something, it, he, he will read every book and watch every video and um, make charts and graphs and charting his progress. Kind and, of obsessive. Yes. Um, and my mom was a, was a housewife. And, um, and neither, I mean, your dad sounds like he's an athlete. Like, where do you get yeah. the dancing from? Uh, uh, probably from both. I sort of lucked out um, that, you know, my dad is, actually everyone in my family is a, is a good athlete. My dad is particularly good. And uh, my mom, although she never danced, she has the perfect ballet dancer's body. So I, I got genetically kind of lucky. Got, I got her feet. Because yeah, it is a, it is a, it's a, it's a, you have to have like the basic frame in order to even be able to do it. Yes. Like somebody like me, I'm not a ballet. I'm not going to ever be able to do ballet at a high level. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just cross this off my list of possibilities right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of athletic, but I'm the, the, like the guys who can do that have a certain physique. And I know some of it they hammer themselves into, but a lot of it you're just born with. Yes. Yeah. It's not democratic. The, okay. the process. What about guys who do ballet? Like you met a lot of guys, obviously, who are into the yeah. dancing thing. Yeah. Um, what's What's that like? Who, what are they like? I have no context for that. My generation of guys, uh, there uh, was probably the first. Well, because this movie White Nights came out starring Baryshnikov. And was that a and Jeffrey uh, Gregory Hines? Gregory Hines, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and both of them were amazing, but Baryshnikov particularly, it was like this totally sexy cool russian dude doing this amazing stuff and so what was so amazing about him i know i because i, cause I yeah. grew up it was like barishnikov barishnikov right. he's the ballet guy yeah but i couldn't tell you why he's so great yeah um he just he had i mean among he had an, an incredible technical facility for dance so when he jumped he just flew into the air um he had a high vertical yeah he had a high <laughs> vertical um, he could do these amazing things, but it, it all just looked so good. He just had this in, unearthly movement quality. You couldn't take your eyes off him. And he was a really passionate performer uh, in the good sense. In the, in the, I mean, you just your jaw would drop watching Isn't it, him. But is he, that's, it seems obviously hard work goes into it, yeah. years and years of practice. Yeah. But when it comes to physical activities... Mm-hmm. Uh, sports, ballet. I guess ballet right. is a sport. Is it a sport or an art? Or is it both? It's an art, but yeah. But if yeah. there's a strong physical Absolutely, component, yeah. Uh, whenever I look at people who are stars in that realm, 
it sort of makes me think like, yeah, it's mostly just luck and talent. Like you got to have that to right. really excel at a high level. And then I think about like writing and I wonder if it's the same thing, but we just like trick ourselves into thinking because there isn't some like physical capacity that's like visible that you can see, right? you know, like a Michael Jordan or something. You're like, oh yeah, this yes. guy's got the, he's born with this. He's six right. foot six. He's got these giant hands. He can jump out of the gym. Right. You know, there are people who, when they sit down to write, who can just do it? Right. I think um, talent in writing is hard to quantify and in in sports or, you know, something like ballet. It, it's an easy to, you know, right. you're either, you can do, you can either catch the ball or turn or whatever, yeah. or you can't. Yeah. And if you don't, there's no like mm, subjectivity. Like, I, I feel for me, he caught the ball. Right. Saying that, <laughs> right. You know? right. Yeah. So, yeah, so writing is, um, uh, it would be interesting to kind of try to figure out what's, what are those equivalents? I think writing is sort of the art form that a lot of people turn to when they can't play music (laughs) and, uh, they can't, you know, act or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, well, I'm creative and I want to live a creative life, but, uh, I'm not a rock star. Uh, I don't look like a leading man. So what I'll do is I'll write a novel. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I, I know that's not that's an oversimplification, but I think there's some grain of truth to that. There's this sense I think among people, and you hear people say this to you who aren't even writers, where they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to write a book one day," right? Which is annoying. Yes. Very <laughs> when you've annoying. been like grinding sure. it out, <laughs> you know, day after day, and they just kind of casually talk about this book that they're going to write. But right. um, yeah, I guess it just concerns me sometimes that uh, I'm like, man, do you just have to have it? Is it just a genetic lottery, and and you need to kind of have come to grips with it somehow? Like, how do you feel about it? Because you, you obviously had this natural gift and that you were born with this like ballerina's body and you can go out and um, dance and you have an innate sense of rhythm and ability to do that. And then you transition into a completely different art form. Right. I'm sure there's some um, commonalities or some things that you got from dance that inform the way that you approach writing. But do you, do you ever think to yourself like, well, I got one thing. Is it possible that I could have gotten two? Is that too much to ask? I, I definitely thought, well, I can't possibly be good at writing because uh, I know what it's like to have been good at something, and it manifested itself at a very early age, and I train like hell for it. So I can't be a good writer. or That would have been discovered in me already. And uh, Plus, I, I didn't do the training. I didn't go to... I didn't go to college at all. You know, I, I, I graduated high school and I started a career. So, um, so I had none of the markers that I had learned made someone, you know, as a dancer, it's, you get picked really young and you get the scholarships to the right school and, and you go to the right places and that marks you as being talented. I didn't have any of those markers for writing. So I thought, well, this is probably not going to work out so well, <laughs> but you me. kept, but you kept going. Yeah. Um I I I did. I guess I I just wanted it for me even if it didn't work out professionally well. You were you were reading a lot even as a dancer as a young person? That was the only other thing other than dance that I did. I was um all I did was read. Read and and take ballet class. And what were you reading? Everything. Anything I could get my hands on. Okay. Just I had no discrimination. I had no idea because I really hadn't been taught what to think about books. So it took me a while before I realized <laughs> that you could even think critically about 
books. But you were reading for just pure enjoyment. Yes. That's good, though. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel like when you get into the actual work of trying to make a book uh, and you do start to read critically, a little bit of the joy can get taken away because you're deconstructing everything. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of know how the sausage is made. Exactly. You're constantly like comparing it to your own attempts. Right. You know, and yes. like it's a little bit of the innocence is gone. Right. So, but in the beginning for you, it was just, I love this. Yes. It was effortless. And also I had so little formal education and I knew I had a, I had to supplement that. So what were you doing for education? Like you're in New York City at age 15 mm -hmm. at the Joffrey School of Ballet. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously you're getting a wonderful education as a dancer, but mm -hmm. do they supplement that with tutors or did you have some sort of high school? I, I graduated from a professional children's school. Okay. Uh, I like the fame school? It, no, because this was just academics. It's it's where sort of all the actors and uh -huh. working. Um, Who were you in high school with? Uh, let's see, my year. Uh, there was a there was like a Cosby kid. I only went once a week to turn in my assignments and pick up the next week's assignments. When I graduated, uh, my so my parents came for graduation. We all took the subway to the thing. I knew no one in my class. It was complete strangers. I think my mom was sitting next to Martha Plimpton in uh -huh. the audience. Right. Because she had just graduated the year before or two years before or something. Um, that sounds sort of great. Yeah. You just t get your assignments, turn them in. It was. And you get to, like, you know, be free otherwise yeah. to yeah. do your thing. Right. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to be a kid that was doing something else. Otherwise, you'd get in a lot of trouble. Um but yeah, it worked, you know, it worked for me. Did you? Were you getting paid? When did you start getting paid to dance? Uh, the next year, um, I guess so I was um, sixteen, seventeen. And you're doing ballets in New York City. Mm -hmm. You travel around the world. I didn't travel that much as a ballet dancer, but I ended up towards the end of my career, I started doing uh, theater dance, and. Uh, like Broadway stuff. Yeah. Okay. Like musicals. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was a little run of musicals where they needed dancers but they didn't have to sing i have a, a terrible famously terrible singing voice this makes me feel good yeah. if you could also <laughs> sing i would be i don't know if i could handle the rest of this interview um yeah no i'm a horrible singer uh but they there were i i joke that, it's, that at a time in new york there was always jobs for ballet dancers that could speak you know in a commercial or TV show or, or these shows. And there were only like three of us that didn't pass out at the thought of speaking. So we got all the jobs. Um, and so I ended up doing a tour uh, for two years, really, with a musical. Which one? Contact. Okay. Is that like, that's not like the Jodie Foster yeah, movie? Yeah, not the Jodie Foster. <laughs> the most like miscast movie. <laughs> like the, the romance between her and Matthew McConaughey has always given me a lot of trouble. Right. I didn't buy it. Yeah. But Contact was what? It was a musical about... Yeah, it was a musical about about making contact with human beings, okay. not with aliens. And so uh, along those same lines, mm. socially, mm -hmm. because you didn't have a, like a traditional high school mm. uh, situation, you were kind of operating in an adult world early. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you, know, you were socializing, I guess, with other dancers. Like, Did you have friends in a normal way? Did you feel like a kid when you were 17 years old or did you feel like you had already kind of moved on i didn't all my friends were older and i was always wanting to not call attention to the fact that i was so much younger than everyone else i mean i, I that was always the case i started high school when i was 12 so i was 
already really young, you know a lot younger. Than Wait, you started when you were twelve? Yeah, I skipped grade to go to to start training. Okay. At, at the um, school, and I was already kind of young, young in my year. So I was always a, a lot younger than people, and I didn't want to call attention to that. So all my friends were older, and I, there was a lot of me pretending I was okay with <laughs> <laughs> things I wasn't completely okay with. But yeah, I, I had friends. I mean, the, the dance world, although competitive, is, uh, is also family in a way. So the sort of, you know, backstabby ice pick in the point shoe kind of thing is not, that's not really what's going on. People are pretty cool. Is that from Black Swan? Um, probably. There's okay. probably an ice pick somewhere <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> I, I saw it. I saw it like, you know, I was like, I was watching it in bed. So I was like in and out of sleep or something. But yeah. It seemed dark. Right. Yeah. Did you see it? I did. Did you like it? Well, I was working on a novel that's, that was set in the dance world at the time, um, which I didn't want to do. I wanted to write other things, but then it, I just felt, okay, let me write my dance novel. We'll do that. Uh, so I was about halfway through, and then that's when Black Swan came out. And I've been sort of skeptical, because dance movies are usually pretty bad. They're always goofy in a way that is mildly depressing. There was a little bit of camp to it, but I felt like it was interesting. Good yeah. performances. Yeah. I think I would have enjoyed it more if it was a lot weirder. You don't think it went far enough? I think they should have given a script to like a Guillermo del Toro and had, you know, giant swans battling each other <laughs> on the streets of New York. Like more green screen. Yeah. Come yeah. on. Go for it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, okay. So when did your career end as a dancer? Uh, kind of in, well, after I was on that long tour I knew I wanted to uh, write that seemed embarrassing and weird to me um, I didn't really want to tell anyone I was doing that I thought, you wanted to quit dancing I was ready to stop what yeah. age were you 30 oh okay so yeah. okay so you had your entire 20s you spent working as a dancer yeah and what is the age range for I mean what is the typical career age range for a dancer it depends there's so much injury in it that um but some people can stay really healthy and dance into their 40s um you know it's, it's in, most people will get injured at some point um everyone does really but but some dancers are able to stay healthy and dance into their 40s that's not totally usual though it's a, you know a bit like sports where some you people, just, really, have, yeah, some people yeah. just have the yeah have resilient the bodies and the, yeah and some people don't um and it's harder for men you know because they have a lot of heavy lifting literally heavy lifting and and also you know uh, jumping and things so um so sometimes the women can dance a little bit longer than the men but um yeah so is there a sadness to being really like invested in a art and a career pursuit tied to your physical body, which is inevitably going to like the thing about writing is that you can do it for a lifetime. Yes. But a physical art or a sport, you know, I always think about this for people who are professional athletes. It's the thing that they are the best at is the thing that, that is their gift. Right. And by the time they're 35 or 40, it is dissipating and gone. Yeah. I think it is very, there's a melancholy. And usually by the time you get, but you mature as a person and become a real artist, you can't do it. Yeah. You know, like, so cool. I, fi I finally have something to say. <laughs> right. And my body can't do it. Ah. So, 
Yeah, it's great when when the two come together and you see dancers that you know um, are physically at the top of their game and 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 just also as artists just blooming. But was, it doesn't was, last. Was your interest in writing like were you always kind of in the back of your mind thinking, okay, I got to be thinking of what else I'm going to do because I know there's a clock on this. Right. No, I was completely. I don't know what I. I was in my dream world. I had no plan uh, past dancing. That was it. Yeah, it's not sensible uh, in that way. I guess I always thought something will work out. It'll all, it'll all work out. It'll be there on the night. Um, That's youth. Yeah, it's youth. And uh, but I mean, are you an optimistic person by nature? No. Okay. Yeah. But this in this case, you were just like maybe it was just like. I don't want to think about this. Yeah, I think it's that. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a lot I didn't really want to think about. Um, So, yeah, I wasn't ever really, like, planning to be a writer. But once I I had been on this long tour and I got back to New York and I finally had a little bit of money, it wasn't like, oh, I got to find my next thing immediately. And uh, so I just, I had an idea and I just started writing I think I had a new computer, too. I had money for a new computer. (laughs) Time. Uh, So, yeah, and that's when actually I I was about halfway through what would would be that novel, and and friends of mine in Los Angeles called me up and said, what are you doing? I said, this is, don't laugh, but I think I'm writing a book. And they said, you should come to L.A. We have a house and a guest room and dogs and a patio. It's August. You want to be in New York City. And if you live in New York City and have since you're a kid, the the idea that people have patios, yeah, is just it just seems extraordinary, <laughs> <laughs> so exotic. Yeah. If you have a dining room, right. you must be millionaires. <laughs> uh, so I came out here, and it, it was I thought, oh, LA is perfect because it's so boring. I won't I won't have anything to do. I'll just write all the time because you. I didn't get it about L.A. when I first got here. I Especially just, coming from New York. Yeah. Because yeah. everything I feel like is it's more compressed in terms of landscape and stuff to do. And you can jump on the train. And right. there's bars right down, down right downstairs. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. I kept asking, well, where's the thing? Like, where's the – where do people go? Because I didn't see anyone on the street yeah. <laughs> walking around. So it took a while. Now, now I think L.A. is – How long have you been here? Uh, nine years. And you, that was the move. You left New York. Yes. And that was the end of your dancing career. And, well, I danced a little bit here, uh, with the opera, with LA Opera, which is really more organized costume wearing than dancing. It's fantastic. Um, it's so much fun and they're very nice. So I just, I danced a little bit just to make some money on the, on the side. Okay. And then. And you were, and you wrote this book? Uh, I wrote, yeah, I wrote so I finished that novel, and I got an agent, and, and she shopped it around, and it didn't, uh, it didn't sell to anyone. And so after a bit of trying, I thought, okay, well, I just I need to write another book. Then you weren't you weren't uh, you know disenchanted with it. You just decided to keep going. Right. Yeah. Even after all that. You yeah, know, it's such a common thing. Right. But it's it's like an incredible amount of work to get a book done. Right. And then you get the agent, which is not necessarily easy. Was right. it easy for you to get an agent? Uh, I got, yeah, I got kind of lucky 
is sort of a, I had, a, of all things, a ballet dancer that I had worked with. We're at a, I had gone back to New York and we we're standing at a party and I said, oh, I'm writing a book. And he said, you know, my mom's a literary agent. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So but, I got the lucky thing. But, it, you know, did you find yourself uh, depressed or upset about it? Or was it one of those things where you were like, that ah, was my first try? I think because all I knew from from trying to do something is that there's a long period where people tell you that you're doing it wrong, you know. I had like a lot of criticism from a young age from so, dance instructors. From, yeah, exactly. Not in a horribly cruel way. I mean, you get used to it, sort of. But but yeah, it would be absurd that my first book would be good. How how could it be, really? I mean, I was surprised that it did as you know got as far as. It went. So it just made sense to me that, oh, yeah, you should just write something else. Completely different. Yeah, completely different. And, you know, do it better. And you were living off of dance money or, like, touring money all no, that time? Uh, I, I lived off the touring money until that began to seem untenable. And I didn't want to dance at any good level. You need to be in shape. You need to be in class every day. And I didn't want to be in class every day. I would had enough of class, and uh, and I was getting older, you know. So I thought I need a job. What do <laughs> <laughs> I am trained for nothing? I have no skills. I can bring nothing to the table. And uh, someone said, oh, you know, you'd make a good massage therapist. I bet. So I, I went to school for massage therapy. I just had a massage the other day. Was it good? It was extraordinary. It just changes everything, doesn't it? It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I've had, I mean, so I've had bad. a good amount of massages in my life. But this woman who a friend of ours recommends, it's one of these L.A. things. We have a friend who gets a massage every week. Oh. She and her husband. Wow. They sp- you know, it's like yeah. $1,200 a month on massage. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they're of, they're, they have the means and they swear by this woman. Uh, she came over and gave my wife and I a massage. Now, granted, we are sleep deprived and have a newborn in the house. Right. Yeah, uh, we both wept. <laughs> so like, a, like I got a little teary. My wife actually came out like I crying. It. Yeah. Like it like unlocked something in right. us. Right, absolutely. Was, it was great. Yeah, and she did a little reiki, which I'd never had, where she just like it was like a laying of the hands sure. at the end. It's yeah. some energy work and chakras or whatever it is. Right. But um, you know, if somebody knows what they're doing, it's, it's really. I mean, it always feels really good to get a massage. But yeah. if somebody really knows what they're doing and has like an intuitive sense, right. Of like you know, because she asks good questions about like what what hurts, how you know what you know all that nice. kind of stuff. Yeah. So you uh, you went to school for this. Yes. And then you start doing it. Do you like it? I love it. I, this is kind of an eccentric job for a writer to have. <laughs> I know of no other writers that are massage therapists. But I haven't met one yet. I, I was thinking about this while I was getting the massage. Uh-huh. I was like, I want to interview this woman right. about her work, uh-huh. and now you're here. Uh, here I. <laughs> You're the first person that I have talked to since I got this massage. This is, I feel like there's something to that. Right. So okay, I'll I'll just pretend, you know I'll just project yes. all of my questions yeah. onto you now. Sure. Um, it's very peaceful work. Yes. Because you're not. I mean, there is some conversation, mm-hmm. but it's mostly like quiet conversation. Sometimes right. the person's sleeping or they're just to- totally silent. Mm-hmm. You typically have like new age music playing. Right. Um, some sort of eucalyptus scent or some sort of like aromatherapy. <laughs> Exactly. Like, it just seems like a nice, yeah. I mean, and then you can sort of, I can imagine as a masseuse, and you can tell me, but you get into a zone. Completely. It's kind of meditative work. hmm And then you're also healing, you're doing something healing. hmm Making people feel better. Right. And it's like work with your hands. Like, it's got to be rewarding. Yes. It's very satisfying. 
You, and people are happy to see you. Yes. Who doesn't want to see their masseuse? Right. And at the end of of the hour, hour and a half, they're just, they feel fantastic, which makes you feel good because in not in a, there's not a lot of other situations in my life where after an hour with me, people are like, thank you so much. <laughs> thank right. you. Right. Because you know. people are carrying a lot of stress. Yes. It's hard to be a human being. It's, yeah, it's tricky. Everybody needs a masseuse. They do. You know, do you, like, okay, do you get massages regularly? And yeah, I do not as regularly as I should. Right, because I, I always wonder, like you're, a, you know, you're a massage therapist. You're constantly giving people massages, but like, do you have other like masseuses you know where you like trade? Yeah, we trade. All that. It's great. Every time I get a massage, I think, oh yeah, this is great. This, is wonderful. <laughs> this works too. Right. I feel so much better. Are your hands super strong? They are. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah. And like, how many can you do in a day? Where you're actually giving people your best. Because it it's also physically demanding work. Yes. Like if you do five massages in a day, I've got to believe that like the fifth one, you're going to be fading you're a little tanked. bit. You know, you go to – part of the training is to figure out how to do it without killing yourself or, you know, you learn to use different things. And a lot of how tired you are depends on the person that you're working on. Some people are very easy to work on and some people – Meaning what, they're loose? Or they're sort of open or – um, what do you mean, emotionally? Or do you mean like physically? Physically. Okay. Some people get on the table and it's like working on a countertop. Um, I mean, they just they just have a hard body. They don't drink enough water. They're, they're locked up. They're completely locked up. Um, and other people just flop down and, you know, I imagine you and your wife totally sleep deprived, yeah. exhausted. You just <laughs> flop down and... We're, you know, have at it. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I was basically, I, I think I told her I was going to go to sleep, but then I didn't. I thought I would fall asleep, but I stayed awake. And then by the end of it, I was tearing up. Yeah, it's so great. Bananas. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about creepiness? Because I feel like <laughs> I had a friend uh, growing up in high school. I want to say right out, of, right out of high school or something. She went through like a deep, like new agey hippie phase and then wanted to go to, to massage school. And her mother... Um, freaked out. Her mm. mother associated it with like you know happy endings and like it was an oh, un, right. it was yes. an unseemly yes. thing in her mind. And I I know that like that, I mean I just wonder like especially if you're somebody who's doing massages in people's homes right or you're taking on new clients like do you ever run into any creepiness? Well, I work at a I work at a fancy spa. Oh, okay. So it's sort of vetted. Yes. Yeah, so it's sort of vetted. And I like to think that my general demeanor. <laughs> I will, it, I will shiv you. Right, you exactly. Yeah. I'm very scary in person. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that that sort of cuts down on the creepy. You never had anything like that. Well, I've had, I've had, yes, people want to escalate. They've this. said that to you. Yeah, there's a sort of there's a weird. It's so funny that I'm talking about this. There's a thing that guys do when they're trying to test the waters of their massage therapist. What do they do? They sort of start bumping you like with their arm and uh, if you're standing next to the table working on them they might inch their arm towards you kind of touch you a little bit <laughs> see what do you do just like yeah just, just kind of kick it back over i mean i think there are two things that really shut down a guy's desire one is pain <laughs> <laughs> and the other is a woman's sense of humor 
So if I make a joke, you know, that usually. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, nobody wants their massage therapist laughing at them. Uh, nobody wants their, you know, a woman laughing at them. But um, yeah, so that usually shuts it down. But that's like a, it's like not a common occurrence. Cause like. No, it's not that common. No. Good. Yeah. Okay. Very, yeah, very rare. All right. Cause like, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of, uh, I feel like I'm uh, on a daily basis on social media. I am receiving the message that men are awful and creepy. Right. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And I know it's real. You sure. know, I'm not doubting its yeah. existence, but it can sort of, uh, it can make me feel like most men are awful and creepy. Right. And so then I'm thinking like, oh God, you know. Right. You must be running into this constantly. It's sort of heartening to think that you're not. <laughs> no, I, I, I meet m- many more, you know, lovely, respectful. Grateful. Who, grateful. Who are like, dude, I'm so stressed out. Yeah, that have absolutely no, yeah, they don't. don't. And, and so you like, you're satisfied in that line of work. Yes. Is, yeah. it, is it another thing where, because uh, I feel like, you know, physically it's a demanding job. Is there like a time, time limit on how long you can be effective as a masseuse? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that the books have done well enough now that I don't have to do that much. It's really sort of extra for me. So, and and I I would hope that the books would continue to do okay. And How well did the books do? You have two books out. Uh, I have two that I wrote myself and then two that I collaborated uh, on with another writer. Okay. Uh, and we published those under a pen name since there were two of a us. A single pen name. Yes, a single pen name. So, yeah, so four books total. So that's, you know, that adds up a little. Rolls of change. Right. The rolls of change add up. You get a little royalty check every once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, and I just finished a a new book, so. And how do you work? Like, you have uh, a daily schedule? Are you seven day a week? Not seven days. Try to write five days, five or six days. Maybe the sixth day is more research or review or something. And then... In terms of, uh, like, what time of day? Are you up at the crack of dawn? I, I switch it up. Uh, for a long time, I was doing, like, get up, right, go to the gym, come back, right. That worked really well for a while. And then, you know, cocktail hour and then review. Right. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it kind of just, it depends. There's You know, you go through different stages of, of a book, right? There's this sort of the desperate falling in love stage where you just want to be with it all the time. And then the time where you wonder if maybe your new boyfriend is a little bit dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Then you want to introduce him to your friends. Like, would you, would you meet my boyfriend? This is a really good analogy. Tell me if he's dumb or not. And your friends are like, no, I don't know why you think he's dumb. He's He's great. (laughs) And then you're like, okay, I do like him. I guess I do like him. Yeah. So, so it, depending on what stage of, of the, the relationship. So the falling in love stage, you're up at first thing. I would imagine you want to be with the book right away. You're just, yeah, you're thinking about it all day long. Other people want to talk to you about things other than your boyfriend, and you just want to talk about your boyfriend. Every song reminds you <laughs> of it. Yeah. So that that stage. And wh- where do you typically, like, how do your books start for you? Is it like you have a character in your head? You have a title. You have um, a situation. It's a situation or question, usually, some preoccupation with an idea. And then there's a lot of mulling before I start writing. I don't what does mulling mean? So just, mean, yes. Thinking it over, reading, yeah. reading, doing research? Doing research, thinking it over. Um, I don't outline 
but I like to have a sense of the thing before I begin. Um, you know where it's going to end? I usually know where it's going to end. I, I just don't know what anything... Ha- I know the beginning and the ending. I just don't know the middle bit. I feel like having the ending, or at least a, a decent grasp of the ending, is so it seems so important. Yeah. Otherwise, what are you writing toward? I guess some people figure it out on the way, but... Right. It would seem to me like uh, uh, scarier potentially fraught to not have any sense of that yeah i don't yeah i don't understand how that works because sometimes the ending changes but at least you had an idea of what you were going toward yeah exactly like you had some sort of target in your head right um so what are some of the preoccupations can you can you distill like questions that um have you know bothered you that led to your previous books uh i think um i think i write a lot about personal identity and consciousness and um, where the limits, what what m- makes things real or not? Where where do we decide that something is real, whether it's an emotion or or anything else? Um, so yeah, and why, I and why are these preoccupations of yours? I don't know. That's just you do a lot of hallucinogens. <laughs> no, I'm scared of hallucinogens. Um, I do a lot of. I, I'm I'm kind of into science, so I think a lot of things come from that. Um, what kind of science? Is there a particular branch? Uh, well, for a while, I was I was really into brain science, um, and then lately now it's been space because I just finished a a book that uh, has a lot to do with long duration space. Exploration. And this is just, you're curious about it. Yeah. Do you want to go to space? I would like to go to space. I don't have any skills that would make me valuable. Do you want to go to Mars? I would, yeah, I would like you to. You do? Go. Yeah. I have no desire to go to not space. In, yeah, None. Not into it. It doesn't look good. If yeah. it looked like, you know, Hawaii. Very uncomfortable, yeah. I, well, who wants to go to Mars? It's <laughs> horrible. It's freezing. It's freezing, It yeah. looks like a barren wasteland. I mean, I'm glad we have pictures and we can see it. I'm, I'm all down right. for the science of it, but like, I have no desire to go. And then you have to live indoors. Yeah. You would be down for that. I would be. I would be. You, it's not a, I don't think, you know, I'm not volunteering. You're not. Uh, no. It's not that, you're not, like your interest isn't that deep. Right. Yeah. But I mean, I can sort of see if there was, uh, like if Richard Branson, mm-hmm. if you can get on a, one of his aircraft and go up and experience weightlessness mm-hmm. and multiple, multiple people do it before me. Right. Proving that it's safe. <laughs> right. And the statistics are good. I could see wanting to do that. Like, I love the idea of, like, being up that high and, like, right. looking down and being weightless. Yeah. I don't want to stay up there. Yeah. There's a lot of garbage out in space. We've already trashed space. <laughs> it's depressing. What about the moon? Would you would you do a, would you do a moon orbit? Would that be more interesting? Yeah. I less, mean, it, 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 again, it's got yeah. to be road tested. I have no right. desire to be the guinea pig. Sure. I just think it's – so far it's overrated. Now, there was a, a planet that they just uh, discovered – called like Kepler sure, yes. 245B or whatever it was. Right. Mm-hmm. Like right away I like it because it just sounds like a random name for a planet. <laughs> right. uh, but it lo- it's very Earth-like. Yes. And could potentially be like a gorgeous Eden. Yes. Or it could be inhabited by giant lizards. I mean, we don't know. We, yeah. But like, like that, like colonizing a pristine Earth-like planet mm-hmm. that is habitable in a way that is similar to Earth. Right. That sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I feel like that's on the horizon somewhere mm-hmm. in our existence. Right. There's well, got to be at least, you know, a few dozen of those out there in the Milky Way. Yes. You would think. Yes. 
can't just be us. But okay, here's another thing though. Everyone's always taught like there was just this guy, this Russian oligarch, who just dumped an incredible sum of money into trying to make contact with other forms of life out there. Right. When there are millions, you know, I know there are many arguments you can make about where money is needed, but mm-hmm. to me that seems obscene. Uh, people are like children starving. This guy's got two hundred million dollars that he wants to dump into trying to make contact with God knows what out there. Right. And who knows if they're going to even be friendly. Yeah. We could be inviting like some big lizard demon creature to come, you know, suck up our resources and kill us all. Like, I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sort of uh, ambivalent about it, as I'm sure you can tell. Like, I, yeah. I, I get the idea that we want to make progress. I get the idea that like we want to expand our sphere of knowledge and find out what's out there. But I don't know. I worry about what we might find. Right. I'm a little bit dark on that. Yes. <laughs> Black swan is what we're going to find. Yeah. We're find a giant killer black swan. <laughs> I just, but then again, if, if, there's, if there are beings out there that could communicate with us, and especially if they could get here, maybe they would be like way more sophisticated and like spiritually realized than we are. Maybe One they, would hope. Maybe they could teach us something. They could hardly be less, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they should be worried about us. Oh, yes. I mean, we're just a terrible bacteria, really. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I kind of feel like that. Uh, I feel like there's a, you know, uh, the humanist movement or people who call themselves humanists and mm. people who have all this um, conviction in the ability of human beings to solve the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. I have gone through periods, I think, where I've fallen into that camp mm-hmm. and I think I've fallen out of it. Mm. And I think like this notion that human beings are elevated above other species and uh, are somehow, I don't know, better than is is kind of a fallacy. And I feel like, I mean, this is going to sound really bleak, but like if you, you know, you have like a, a barn rat infestation, there's mm-hmm. too many of them. Mm-hmm. Eventually something happens and mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sort of calls the, calls the population. Right. feels like human beings are doing that. We're sort of like overtaking the planet and right. like a bacteria and eventually the planet's going to you know, do what it needs to do. Yeah. Is that too dark? No, I, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not the best person to ask if something is too dark. Cause I'm always going to say, no, that's not too dark. <laughs> that's fact, like it's, a good it's, day for it's me. It's not dark enough. <laughs> no, I think, I think that all the time. That's why you want to go to Mars. Right. Are you, dis- are you uh, a depressive? No. Are you okay? But you are dark. Are you cynical? I'm sure I have my moments like any romantic. Um, what is it? The, the cynics are disappointed idealists. Is that right? Right. Sure. That. Yeah. I mean, I don't think uh, I don't. Uh, I like to. I, I like to say that I should enjoy every day because it's the day before I get my diagnosis. So you know. That's dark. Yeah. But I, it's also kind of healthy. I think so. I think you know. As far as I know right now, like, I'm not, I don't know that I'm dying, except in a general sense today. Every so second. We so, all yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I think I'm a, uh, a realist in a way. Do you have any, any experience with death? Like, did you have, uh, like, cause I feel like, uh, like a strong awareness of it that I don't think I necessarily would have had I not had exposure to it, especially like untimely death as mm, a young person. Mm. Um, did you have any of that? 
no. that informs your sensibility? No. Where, where does it come from? Hmm. I don't know. It makes sense to me, I guess. I didn't have a religious upbringing. Maybe that's part of it. I think if you have a religious upbringing, you have... From Danville, Illinois, and you didn't have any kind of like, no, no, no Jesus. No, no Jesus, no God. Um, Your parents are atheists? Yes. They tell you that they were atheists, or was it just kind of like a non-conversation? Uh, it wasn't much discussed. My dad did tell me that, he sort of explained to me, there are people that believe in God, and um, you should be you know, courteous to them. Especially as they're probably not very bright. That's what he said. I mean, that was, yeah, that was basically like, be tolerant and nice to these people because, you know, things are hard for them and that's, they've got to have, they can't really think things through. So they've got to have a, a God system. And when I moved to New York, I, um, I, I called my dad up at one point and said, oh my, your dad, I, there are intellectuals who believe in God. They're called Jews. <laughs> I met them here. Very nice people. Um, <laughs> so, but that stuck with you. Like you are you an atheist? Yes. Yeah, atheist agnostic. I don't really, you know, I don't want to take anybody's teddy bear away from them. So I'm not. Um, I don't, you know, a champion. I, I don't run around. Although I guess you know, in certain political things, it does. You do have to kind of stand up and declare yourself an atheist. Uh, because, you know, things can go very wrong. But uh, uh, I think maybe if you're... So without that kind of system in my head, I had to figure things out for myself. Um, so maybe the, some of the darkness <laughs> comes from that. Well, so, well, okay, so what do, you think ha- like, what do you think happens with death? Just lights out? Yeah. That's yeah, it? Yeah. I mean, the nice thing is that we don't know, so something else could absolutely occur. But yeah, I think consciousness, and who knows if we live in a, you know if we live in a multiverse, there's all kinds of possibilities for. What is that? Whether there's like another, like ex- like identical Earth-like planet somewhere out there where you and I are having this exact same conversation in a similar garage? Uh, well, yeah, there's lots of possibilities. If there's you know several universes that we're maybe living a different kind of. We're not in the garage. We're in the yard. I'm in, no, we're we're in a fancy, lavish studio. <laughs> right. We're both <laughs> millions of people tuned yeah, in. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I, I kind of think uh, end of and you die. It's the end of your consciousness, and you and this is and but it seems like the the, the fascination with brain science mm. and with space and space exploration mm. is. It has a spiritual component, for lack of a better word. Sure, yeah. I think, um, I mean, the accusation that, uh, I guess the sort of typical, oh, you're you know, an atheist, there has to be something bigger bigger than us. Don't you believe in something bigger than us? And, yes, I do. I think there's a lot of things bigger than us. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't even know the extent to, you know, all that, all that other stuff. I think that's fascinating. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely not for lack of awe in my life. And, uh, I think in a, in a way I have, yeah, a real appreciation for the unknown. Yeah. And you would go to Mars. I can't get past this. 
Well, <sighs> if somebody tomorrow said you want to get on this, you're going to be in this spacecraft for the next five. Well, I how many years does it even take to get there? Well, with conventional rocketry propellant right now, it, it would take about seven months to get there. Seven months. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, that's actually not as bad as I thought. Right. Well, you'd have to wait to to when Mars is in a good position. I mean, the when the orbits when Earth and Mars are closest together it would take seven months. And then you get there. Yeah. Hopefully you land safely. Right. That's got to be a little, that's going to be a bumpy landing. This is a little tricky. <laughs> yeah. But high, the robot, they've done it with the robots. So. Yeah. High wind. You just, I guess, you, I mean, who knows what they would do. But then you land and then you're in a pod. Right. You're probably with a few other people. Mm-hmm. That's some close quarters. Yes, You it better is. like those people. You better like Did those Did you read people. that New Yorker article about the people who are training? Yes. Where they're in that pod in Hawaii? Yes. High seas. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That fascinated me. Pretty cool stuff. So yeah. that's right up your alley. That's right. That's Would you go spend time in Hawaii in that thing? Would you train like that? Yeah, I actually have uh, volunteered to do, there's a similar one in Utah. Uh, I put my name in the in the hat for that. <laughs> it's much less time though. That's so The one in Utah is only, you're there for two, two to four weeks. So if you go to Mars, can you get back from Mars? Uh, you can. Okay. I was going to say, because right. it seems like you can lift off again from that... Yes. Uh, the You'd have to, again, either wait until Mars swings around again or leave pretty soon after you got there and be a longer trip. The long back. weekend. Yeah, you just take, yeah, just take a look. Take like a, go a, like Labor Day weekend. Yeah, yeah. Just take a couple of days. Um, but you wouldn't want to, like if you, if you did go, because mm-hmm. you know what? It seems within, like well within the realm of possibility that eventually there's going to be like the first writer to go to Mars, there's going to be a colonization. Right. I don't think that's too far-fetched. No. Um, would you want a round trip, or would you be willing to just go and say goodbye to all that? The round trip thing doesn't... I mean, d- it appeals to me more than... Uh, because the conditions are going to be really rough. Limited resources. I mean, I'm... I like a hot shower. And... <laughs> Yeah, regular food and uh, like a walk and outside. Br- yeah, breathing air. I mean, you can't have to live in a bubble. You have to live in a closed environment. I think it would be really difficult. Difficult enough to just, just stand it getting there. And then you get there and you can't take off your helmet. Oh, my God. Yeah. So really rough. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, imagine sneezing in your helmet. <laughs> it's a concern. It's a yeah. It's a, it's just really. I think people need to think it through. Clearly, it seems like you've done a lot of thinking along these lines. So I'm not speaking of you specifically, but I think there is a romanticism and a, like sort of a sci-fi, uh, fantastical view sure. of space travel. Right. And when I start to actually get into the reality of it in my mind, it seems bleak. It's incredibly difficult. And even, I mean, the big joy apparently is the weightlessness, but that's incredibly hard on your body. Like the joints and you think ballet is bad. Right. Try weightlessness. Try weightlessness. Well, when, yeah, when they come back, uh, you know, their spines have been stretched out to two, in, two inches. They get two inches taller when they're in space. Well, what's his name's up there for a year right now? Yeah. Scott. Uh, yeah. I forget his uh, name. Scott. Um, they're twins. Kelly. Yeah, Scott Kelly. Yeah. He and his brother. That's uh, but that, I mean, I guess that's a but that's a precursor to a very extended trip. I mean, if he's out there for a year, that's what 
five months longer than what it would take to get to Mars. So we're going to get to see what it would do. There, yeah, that's the purpose of it is to study the the effects of long duration, uh, weightlessness, exposure to radiation, all of that, all this, and the psychological effects too. It's a long time to be away from your family, and they're very, you know, they're in con- the International Space Station is pretty close. It's not that far far away, but Mars is far. Yeah. So, and you won't be able to, you know, call. Ugh. No Facebook. There's no face. <laughs> there will be no Facebook. <laughs> There'll be you but know see, books, time delay. Books. This is where books will re- return so to the core. There's so much time for reading on the way to Mars. <laughs> books will be huge yeah. in that space pod. <laughs> they will be listening to exactly this kind of thing. They can just download episodes of this podcast yeah. and take them with them. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's what it's made for. My podcast could uh, go to Mars. That, yeah. that'll, that'll be my way of going to Mars. Right. Take me with you. Yeah. <laughs> on that space pod. Yeah. Uh, aside from brain, space, mm-hmm. is there any new preoccupations? Is there any other itches that you have found yourself wanting to scratch, like questions that you've had? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think I've been thinking lately about love. You single? I am. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I've been thinking about love lately. What's the, what what about it? I have no, well, I have, yeah, I have no conclusions. Um, I don't know. And fa- I guess f- f- what constitutes family, too? Um, I have one inside if you want to go look. <laughs> Take a notebook and. <laughs> make, some o- make some notes, yeah. some observations. <laughs> you can just complete. You got, you can, How does this work? You know, it's a... Uh, I've tried to define this because it's one of those things. I, I, I am often uh, made curious or troubled by these very common concepts that when you actually step away from them, you have no idea what they mean. Right. You hear it all the time. Yes. I'm in love. Yeah. You need to find love. Love yeah. is the most important thing. Love is all you need. Like, right. and then it's like, okay, well, what is it? That's exactly. Yeah. My short definition. Yes. A sense of felt oneness with being. A sense of felt oneness with being. Like the it, being. You, like you feel totally alive. See, now I'm going to fuck it up. <laughs> no, but I, a person with whom you are in love is a person who, uh, and, and it's a mutual thing. You wake each other up. Mm-hmm. You know, that sense of like, we're both, mm-hmm. um, we're both alive. Like mm-hmm. our essences or like the, not the mind chatter, mm-hmm. but you know, just like this, whatever life force there is within us, you, you feel that with mm-hmm. them. Did you feel that for your wife right away or soon, or does yeah. it grow over time? Or yeah. You or? Um, I'm way more like the, it was funny, the masseuse that gave me the massage, mm-hmm. uh, she was like, because I'm sort of into the Buddhism and the meditation. My wife isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, she And the masseuse was like, yeah, like, you know, it's the hooga booga. She's like, I'm into the hookah booga too. I'm like, I'm totally into the hookah booga. <laughs> uh, so I think like this understanding of it is not something that was ever made super explicit between Carrie and I, my uh-huh. wife. You know, like it, it wasn't like I sat down. I was like, honey, I feel, I feel a sense of oneness, oneness of, with the being. Uh, yeah, it's 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 me more trying to figure out what it means mm-hmm. because I think you have these romantic uh, versions of it. Like, sure. Oh, we're gonna just make each other happy, and uh-huh. we're always gonna laugh, and right. we're always gonna be there. You know, it's. I think it's subtler than that. And, and when you meet somebody, 
that you want to be with in a in a long-term relationship intimately there's a naturalness to it right do you know what i'm saying like uh-huh. there are lots of people like love is not something that you should i think be really uh limited with mm-hmm. like oh there's this one person with whom i'm in love. like i kind of want to be in love with everybody mm-hmm. do you know what i'm saying i want to have right. love for everybody but mm-hmm. there are there are people and there is this special person in my life who wakes me mm-hmm. up and we have this strange like energy mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. that's what you know I'm, I'm doing a horrible job. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, but I think like the romantic I- ideal can mess people up. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is sometimes you have these, uh, de- you know, really uh, dashed dreams where mm-hmm. you have all these expectations going in of what it should be and it doesn't live up. And then it's like, well, you know, or I think that like that romantic, that romantic idea of love that's sort of like really emotional. You make me so happy. Mm-hmm. It can feel great. But the other side of that coin is is hate <laughs> and anger. Yeah. You know, they really are two sides of the same coin. And so once you get into the thick of it and you're with somebody for a while, you're bound to run into that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I think that's it. And then I think having children has really, like I always say, I wouldn't really know what true love is without kids because every other kind of love that I've that I've experienced is, is kind of conditional mm. love among adults is always conditional. Mm-hmm. I love my wife dearly, but mm-hmm. if I find out tomorrow that, you know, she's been sleeping with Lenny Kravitz, like there's going to be trouble yeah, <laughs> yeah, or whatever, you know, right. it's uh, my kid could like back over, you know, back over me with a car and I'd be like, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's like, it, it's, yeah. it's really, uh, of a different magnitude. I think my wife would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, yeah, that's the that's the biggest experience of it for me personally. Do you find You're interviewing me now by yeah. the way. <laughs> that's all right, that's all right. Do you fi- do you find uh, unconditional love a painful or liberating or both is it No, it's a sacrifice. A sacrifice. But I like the sacrifice. Uh-huh. The sacrifice it, of your well, I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into being in a relationship. Mm-hmm, there's yeah. a lot of sacrifice that goes into being a parent. A lot. Time, mm-hmm. sleep, energy, finances. Mm-hmm. Um, you give up a lot. Right. You you give up a ton. Right. But it delivers way more than it takes. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's the thing. And I think people, I think, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who aren't cut out to have kids, don't have an interest in it, mm-hmm. um, aren't wired for it. Mm-hmm. Don't want it right. for whatever reason. Yeah. That is fine. Yeah. Uh, I do struggle sometimes. I don't know how you could possibly know that feeling of like really deep love without a child, but that doesn't mean that people can't. I might just be limited <laughs> <laughs> in my ability to love other people. You know, like a, right. a kid is just different. It's a, you know, this biological thing and it's like your heart is outside of your body. Like, there's all these kind of cliched ways that people talk about it that feel very real to me. Um, but I don't think everybody should have kids and I don't want to be that annoying guy who suggests as much because that's actually a bad idea. Some people really shouldn't have kids. Right. Um, but I would know. say that, well, I'm, I mean, I don't have kids and uh, so I don't, I, I don't, this love of which you speak, but I, I, I would posit that, that, that love is very particular but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the greatest love of all time it's just a a very specific form of it and if you 
so yes, yeah, someone with, who never has kids will never feel that. that kind of love. But that doesn't mean that they've lost out on their own right interesting who knows i mean who yeah. knows like people can feel it for a friend a pet right a parent i mean like i'm gonna feel it for mars yeah yeah i mean it, this is my experience right you know trying to kind of uh parse it or whatever but yeah. everyone has different experiences yeah. um so but i mean in terms of like this this question and your research and the mulling that you typically do that, yeah. that you know uh, comes before the writing of a book like what kind of research are you doing well, for, I mean, you mean on the love thing? Yeah. yeah I don't know that I'm going to write about it. I think that's more, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I just finished a book, so uh, I am i haven't. And the book that you just finished, The Preoccupation, was? The Preoccupation was, uh, the difference, well, it was a lot, has a lot to do with, um, with relationships in a way, but it, it's a lot to do with what constitutes reality. Um, and, uh, and so space is a really great place to, uh, start with that. So in fact, the, the book takes place in a, in a simulator, um, like that high seas thing that you you spoke about. I I was thinking I should write a book about, but you already did it. I already did. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for taking care of that for me. (laughs) You're right to thank me because it was a buttload of research. Oh my God. Yeah. Just to get like the particulars right of what uh, existence would be like inside of one of those things. Exactly. You have no frame of reference. You've never been in there. No. I did, uh, I did uh, do a sensory deprivation tank at one point. Have you ever done one of those? No. Yeah. How was that? It's very cool. What about, uh, because I want to say, what is it, Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan does that a lot on mushrooms. Oh, yeah. He takes mushrooms and goes into a sempor- sensory deprivation tank. Interesting. Did you get any, like, I mean, it's just very relaxing. Did you yes. get any kind of, like, insight? I did a little, actually. Well, you, it takes, like, 20 minutes for your eyes to adjust to complete absence of light. And and they say that's often the time that you have a little hallucinatory experience. That's very normal. In fact... Uh, they they use uh, sensory deprivation tanks sometimes for schizophrenics because it's like the one time the schizophrenic doesn't hear voices in their head. Is when there's absolutely no light and nothing, no, no stimuli. Sound. Yeah. So you're what are you in? Are you in like a tank? Yeah, it's basically like a dog kennel, a person-sized dog kennel. <laughs> Can you get one of these for your house? The, I guess theoretically. I mean, you could, you could. we could set one up in your garage. I think. Just move some boxes. (laughs) (laughs) You could come over, do the show, get into the tank, go home. Yeah. I could create a full experience for people. Yeah, the whole thing. (laughs) Like, you could do the tank as, like, a a consolation for, like, having to actually do the show. I'm really sorry. Just relax in my tank. (laughs) Or prior to the interview. Yes. You just get really clear. Get really... Does it have a clarifying thing? Is it meditative and you come out and you're like, okay. Yeah, for for real. How long were you in there? Uh, An hour. That's a good amount of time. Mm Mm-hmm. And you come out feeling refreshed. Yes. Yes. You see a lot. I mean, you, you must, uh, it's like meditation. You're sort of confronted with the, the craziness of your brain. Yeah, in a very real way. And I had a little, I had a strange, you know, sort of hallucinatory thing. And, and, and so, of course, I'm talking to myself saying, well, this is your brain. This is not, you know, none of this is actually happening. And isn't that curious? Like, let's just examine what your brain is producing. And... Um, and then I lost track of that conversation for a while. <laughs> um, 
So it was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny. Like I do a lot of meditation and, uh, and it, like whether I'm sitting down doing it or I'm just in my daily life and like suddenly like I'll, sna- I'll, I'll realize what I'm doing. Right. And yeah. I'm, I'm like, I'm having an entire dramas. Like I'll, I'll be, I'll be having entire arguments with another person. Yeah. Like, or a debate about something yeah. with, like, my parents. Right. All imaginary. Yes. But I'll be feeling the emotion of it. Absolutely. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah, it's exhausting. And I'm, and I'm hiking. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> like, out in nature. You're having, like, some <laughs> weird argument in, like, a very elaborate set. You've got all these, your brain has done all this stuff. Well, and I, okay, because, you know, you, you get into space travel and you get into um, extremes of that nature. Mm-hmm. Even if you're just in the... You know, what do you call it? The pod in, in Utah. Right. You know, anybody who undertakes space travel, even if you're just going up to the space station and you're orbiting Earth, you have to have your shit together. Oh, yeah. They must have to do some serious psychological testing. Because yeah. if you don't, and all of a sudden you're on a seven-month journey to Mars, and one person on the ship starts to lose it, right? it could get dark fast. Yes. Right? Yeah, they have a pretty intense sort of select-in, select-out process. Do you, feel like you, do you feel like you're... Do you have the right stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a lot of this research that I've been doing now has been been about what exactly that right stuff is now. It's it's very different from, say, the Mercury or Apollo days when these short trips, you know, two or three people. Now it's... Now it's an international space station. There's, only, you know, at any any point there might be seven people up there from different countries, and uh, up there for months at a time together. So yeah, you have to be someone who gets along with everyone. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I I know I don't have any of the manual skills that would make me at all useful, and I think it would bother me to be a useless person in a team. You know, if I was the you know, just the journalist or writer. I don't know that I would grant myself uh, that you're that like was the, an important You're task. the observer. You're just like watching everybody. Exactly. Yeah, I can't fix anything. I can't help but with anything. But they need just, that. You know, Someone's got to document this. Somebody does. Somebody has to be the observer. Right. And the uh, and like the, the historian. Yes. Uh, Think about going to Mars, successfully landing on Mars, Hanging out on Mars. Right. Coming home. Yeah. What a hero's welcome. Right. That would be, I mean, as yeah. a writer, you'd be pretty much set up, I would imagine, at least for one book. <laughs> I definitely get a, I'd get a book deal out of that. <laughs> yeah. Your Twitter following would, would probably yeah. jump a little bit. Yeah. That's going to happen. I wonder if that'll happen in our lifetime. Do you think? That we go to Mars? It's like that, that, that book, that that happens. A there and back. And then like a memoir, like, you know, somebody's on the Today Show, like. Right. With like their, their selfies and whatever, showing pictures to Kathy Lee and Hoda of, you know. Of, yeah, of the whole thing. You know, they're kind of a tight-lipped uh, crew, astronauts. They, they do write memoirs, but not all of them. And certainly it's usually years after, I think, because they all would like to go back. And so they don't want to say anything that would jeopardize their career at all. So, you know, you ask any astronaut, this is why you would actually need a writer on the crew because the crew would go to Mars and come back and you'd say, what was it like? And they would say, well... It's it was, like SEAL Team 6. Yeah, it was He's, very good. It was, it was we got fun. Some, we got some good work done. Yeah. You know. 
Did those, you have any problems? Those guys no. are badass. I mean, the guys and gals, they're badasses. Yeah, astronauts. Yeah, pretty incredible. They don't get the. I mean, they used to. I mean, it's like the whole Tom Hanks thing, where it's like they used to be rock stars. Right. That's sort of like they've sort of become normal. Oh, they went to space. Right. Like we should never get to the point where that is uh, viewed as just normal and yeah. whatever. Right. It's absolutely incredible. It's incredible what they do. Makes yeah. writing seem pedestrian. <laughs> 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 makes everything makes everything seem pedestrian. Well, you know, I never want to. I mean, uh, even though I would have a hard time granting myself that that my position would be important, I never want to say that writing is is nothing. You know, it's, no, no, uh, yeah, no, yeah. But just next to space travel, it can yeah, <laughs> it's not quite as impressive. Yeah. So here's a. I'm gonna I'm gonna make a prediction, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna let you go. Okay. You're going to go to space. Uh-huh. Like it. Like you're gonna where we're going. fall in love with oh. an astronaut. Oh. <laughs> you brought it all together It's there. all coming together. And yes. I, feel like, I feel like this preoccupation with love, I feel like you're going to mull. Uh-huh. You're going to do research. Right. You're a person who I think, this is, this is a very noble approach. You take things apart and you, un- and you try to understand them. Right. And then I think as a, as a process of understanding it, I have a feeling you're going to uh, fall in love with somebody. That's my prediction. All right. Good. I have, you know. Let's meet back here. Yes. Talk to me in a year. Yeah. We'll find out how it went. Right. And I'd like you to have the tank ready yeah. by then. <laughs> I'll have the sensory deprivation tank set up. Yeah. And uh, we'll be good to go. But I, I congratulate you on all your success. It's been so fun talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for coming over. Thanks for having me. And best of luck with your mulling. Thank you. <laughs> all right, guys. That is Meg Howry. Her novels are called The Crane's Dance. And uh, Blindsight, both available from Vintage Contemporaries. You can find Meg online at MegHowry.com. And uh, on Twitter, where her handle is at MegHowry. She's also on Facebook. If you're a Facebook person. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Hey, oh wait, did you know that this uh, podcast has its own official app? The Other People app? It's a free app available wherever you get your apps. Go get the Other People app. It's free. Download it on your device. It's the easiest and best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. Uh, The most recent 50 are free. Did I tell you that? And then if you want to sign up for premium and get access to everything, stream the full archives of this podcast, you can sign up for premium right there within the app. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. And it's a wonderful way to support this program. Please do that. This show has, or this uh, song has kind of a uh, 1970s vibe. So I'm picturing, like, imagine me on roller skates. Is that helpful? Uh, I'm very tired. I'm not complaining. I don't want to keep harping on this, but I do want to let you know that if I seem discombobulated, uh, either in this monologue or in the interview with Meg, Meg uh, was the first interview that I conducted. Uh, after the baby. So I'm a little bit foggy in the brain. I hope I was okay. I should say too that I will have uh, upcoming episodes that were recorded uh, before the baby. I'm a little bit out of sorts in terms of chronology for the next uh, few weeks. But that's just because I recorded a bunch before the baby, anticipating the baby. I talked about this before. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean. Come on. Bear with me. 
Please remember that Sigmund Freud's ashes are buried in a Jewish cemetery called Golders Green and that Samuel Johnson, Tennyson, and Nietzsche were all nearsighted. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, you guys, and thanks to Meg Howery. Go get her novels, The Crane's Dance and or Blind Sight. Purchase them. Have them delivered to your door. Go to the bookstore. Track them down. And uh, I will be back uh, next week with another episode of this podcast. I will be coming at you with another episode in approximately seven days, assuming you're listening to this on the day of its uh, airing, which is no no sure thing in this age of podcasting and uh, audio on demand. just going to let this song keep going. I feel like I owe it to this song, and I owe it to Kill Rock Stars, and I owe it to these uh, musicians. To just Oh, there it is. (laughs) 